0: You are listening to Lang FM, the podcast about language and what people do with it. On today's episode, I have a very special guest, Brian Fox. Brian spent most of his working life at the interpreting service of the European Commission, DG Interpretation, or SCIC, as it is also known. was lucky enough to be able to sit down with Brian for a chat before he headed off into his well-deserved retirement in 2016. So listen in and enjoy the conversation. Just things I wanted to talk about, basically. Um, for example, I remember you, I think it was during a, a Skick university conference, you, you remember talking about proudly that you were Geordie. So. Um, you, you are from Newcastle, is yep. that right? That's, that's uh, well, where you, uh, or the, the area.
1: Yeah, my dad was in the RAF, so we moved every few years, but we ended up in the northeast of England, and uh, I was there from the age of uh, 10 hmm. until, until, uh, until I went to university.
0: Or did you pick up any Geordie? Is that what
1: you slightly? I didn't think. I didn't
0: think, the I, the didn't think
1: I spoke with a Geordie accent. But yeah. when I went south, uh, somebody asked me where on earth this accent came from. So <laughs> I realised that I did have one. On the other hand, my my Geordie friends all reproached me that I always spoke too posh. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't win, You can't win them all. But yeah, I managed yeah. to lose them all. Yeah.
0: Is it is it very different from standard English? Is is it more like an accent, or is it really like a proper it's dialect? More,
1: yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it's uh, probably in between. Uh, there are a lot of recognizable English words, but mm. for example, um, well before uh, the uh, freedom of travel within the EU, yeah. the Danes uh, used to come across and pillage Northumbria, yeah. uh, which was rich in monasteries and silver and gold, etc., yes. etc. Um, and uh, they would uh, burn everything in sight and take everything movable away with them. And after a while, they decided that, you know, this was the, they could eliminate the transport costs and time. <laughs> and uh, some of them set up camp in, uh, in Northumberland. So Geordie has a lot of uh, Danish elements in it, strangely. So, for example, uh, to go home in, in Danish is, uh, I don't know how it's pronounced, but it's written Gan Hema. Yeah. And in Geordie in Geordie it's Ganyem. Uh-huh. To go home is Ganyem. I'm Ganyem.
0: Do you also uh do you have an allegiance to Newcastle United or any, any football allegiances?
1: No. Um I'm afraid I'm very boring from that point of view. It depends, yeah. I, I used to love playing football. I even played for the skick side until an advanced age. Um, but, uh, tournament, yeah. um and we had before that we had uh, we used to play what was called the Embassy Leagues. Um No, I enjoyed it, but I've never um, I prefer I always preferred playing it to watching it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, so, so in terms of languages, your parents are both English? Yep. No, you're, my mum's Italian. Okay, so that's where the multilingualism yeah. starts.
1: So I started bilingual, yeah. and it's interesting because, you know, you always talk about, uh, well, we used to say our mother tongue, um, mm. because it used to be the mother's tongue. Mm. Uh, but in fact, my mother's tongue is not my mother tongue. Yes, <laughs> that would be right. And this is why people started moving on to things like main language, first language, principal yeah. language. Uh, I'm a bit retrograde, so I still say mother tongue. But, uh.
0: but your mother tongue would then be Italian. Yeah. And your mom spoke Italian with you at home? Or? Yeah. 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 But Absolutely. you would still consider it your... Second.
1: Oh yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. No, I always lived in England. I spent three delightful months every year in Italy for the summer. Uh, for the summer yeah. Exactly, uh, and uh, and I love that. Um, but I can speak much more freely in English in any register. I can speak freely in Italian in every register except formal Italian <laughs> yes. or, or legalese or something yeah. like that. And there, I'm I'm lost. <laughs> and,
0: and and was your dad on assignment as an RAF yes. pilot in Italy? Is that yeah. how they met? Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. But you grew up then in the north of, of England?
1: Uh, I was actually born in the southernmost point of England, uh-huh. uh, Ramsgate, near Sandwich.
0: Okay.
1: And, um, and then we moved all over the place, but I spent the last, uh, well, the last 10 years of my school life in the, in the north of England, yeah.
0: I read somewhere, uh, that was the Duke of Northumberland School, that's is that right. correct? That's because right. Because that's
1: a very posh It, is, uh, isn't it? Posh
0: title. Yeah. So is, is it like, I would imagine, an old English school, like an old building and everything?
1: It's a very old building. Yeah. It's a listed monument. Um, but they keep changing the educational system in England. So, I mean, okay. nobody would recognize that name anymore, apart from very old people in the, in the town. Um, and there used to be a Duke of Northumberland School and a Duchess of Northumberland School. Mm. And you can deduce from that that one was a boys' school and one was a girls' school. Yeah. So
0: and I read as well that you spent some time in the French educational system as well, in exxon yes, so was uh, that for university? That was, that, like was, uh,
1: that was my third year of university, because at the time in, uh, in the UK, they knew that there was very little exposure to foreign languages. Mm. So if you were a foreign language student, you were required to go for your third year abroad somewhere. Yeah,
0: And what, what exactly did you... I mean, You had did you have foreign languages at school as well? So could you use the Italian in any way in no, school? No, no, no advantage there. No, That's nothing a at all
1: uh I, I got my a level in italian um uh, but i was almost all it was almost all so well with the help of my mum yeah uh, but it was ju- just me studying and and her correcting uh, or whatever
0: yeah but did you still have greek or latin or anything
1: it's, it's we had latin yeah
0: yeah, yeah. And so not useful for the summer holidays.
1: Then, yeah. Well, you know, uh, <laughs> not necessarily. G- Greek, uh, ancient Greek yeah. and Latin used to right. be the prime requirement if you wanted to be any sort of administrator in the British Empire. Right. You could do every, they were called the Greats. The greats. And uh, you went to a university and you did the Greats, and that equipped yeah. you to do everything. This was then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that has probably changed. Times have changed.
0: And I don't know if you want to go into the situation of foreign languages in the UK now, which is, is quite difficult. And it occupied yeah. you during your, your working life as well. Indeed, indeed. In, in trying to find qualified people for the service here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the, strange enough, the people who taught languages and the people who fought for languages were really very gifted and very dedicated mm. and, and extremely innovative in what they were doing. Yeah. Um, but there was no groundswell of opinion to back them up, and it was always seen as a soft option compared to the, the useful stuff, like, uh, like yeah, uh, uh, the stems, uh, the, the, the scientific mathematics, etc., etc. Um, which, uh, which I always thought was a bit, a bit of a shame, really. Yeah. I mean, when I, the last British ambassador here to the to the EU, um, was an English literature graduate. And, and uh, as we said before, times have changed, but at the time, you got a university education which trained your mind. What yeah. you did it in, in English-speaking circles, what you did it in, what subject was, was totally irrelevant.
0: Yeah, that has definitely... Changed.
1: And I still have a great deal of sympathy for that. Yes. Apart from the purely vocational uh, things, it's clear if you want to be a doctor, you have to study medicine, uh, um, and you sorry. can't recycle from uh, Beckham Studies or journalism or whatever.
0: Yeah, but I see what you mean. Yeah. So you went on to study what exactly? And did you study foreign languages? I studied so, yeah. French
1: and Italian. Yeah. French and
0: Italian. So that's like, how uh, do you call it? Yeah, Roman studies or French studies? Or,
1: uh, um, this was Scotland, so they just were very blunt. It was an MA in French and Italian.
0: <laughs> and that was at uh, Edinburgh University? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So
0: was, it, um, was that the first time then in, you spent time in France when, you, when they sent you to Aix-en-Provence to hone your French uh, skills?
1: I went, I went to Paris when I was 16 and, and survived a bit like you know, George Orwell down and out in, in London and Paris. So yeah. I, I had that kind of life, yeah. <laughs> for, but I managed to last a month on a fairly limited amount of money. So mm-hmm. that, was a, that was an eye-opener, I have to say, in many respects. and. Uh, Uh, My Italian and my English I grew up with, but French was certainly uh, a matter of passion uh, or Mm -hmm. a love affair, if you like. So there's a difference, I make the difference there.
0: But that was, yeah, that was just like a holiday, that was not like a gap year. No, that was
1: a month, a month, a holiday, yeah.
0: But it, it was enough to spark your interest, because then, you, I think, I think yeah. you, you worked with French as well, didn't
1: you? Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, so, you then had your degree from Edinburgh University, and did you apply straight to the uh, no. ski car. No.
1: No. Um, I was invited to go to uh, university, to Florence University in Italy, mm. uh, to give uh, language classes, Yeah. Um, And uh, I went at Easter to talk to the professors, and uh, I was offered a contract and uh, and uh, a post, well, part time, a time uh, limited post. And uh, and uh, after university, after the holidays, I turned up in Florence, and uh, um, well, there was no budget. This was a time of uh, contestation uh, between the the Christian Democrats and the and the the communists, Hmm. etc. And they had chosen the uh, languages departments as uh, one of the battlegrounds. As they do. Yeah. And after a couple of months, there was still no salary and my money was running out. So, uh, so uh, I actually privatized my courses a la Thatcher and told the students that uh, I wasn't being paid, but I certainly yeah. had to eat just like them to live. Um, and they would have exams at the end of the year, so maybe we could come to a mutual agreement, which we did. Uh, but that didn't last very long. <laughs>
0: yeah, and you probably couldn't do it at university. Right? Did you have to go to a restaurant yeah. or yes. to a cafe? Yes, yeah.
1: yes absolutely. Okay. Well, they were a bit looser then. We managed to go into the university some of the time. Yeah. yeah. But uh, it was often in the cafeteria and things. And attendance fluctuated as well, of well. course, as you can imagine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so after that, uh, I wanted to stay on in Italy because yeah. I'd never actually lived in Italy. No. Um, and I was enjoying Florence. Florence was an amazing place at the time. Uh, close, Livorno, uh, which is about a hundred K and um, so I stayed on in Florence uh, doing odd jobs, uh, uh, student jobs uh, even out of student time so that was, uh, that, was quite, that was quite interesting but clearly not something you know that could go on for a long time and at the end of the year I went back to uh, the UK. Hmm. And uh, where did the interest uh,
0: come from for interpreting that? Or did, did you do anything related to that? Because I think you in, in, you went on to the stars. Then later on, but what did you do? Yeah. In the meantime.
1: Well, you know, I never actually. Uh, these were golden times when I when I graduated. Um, um, first of all, the world was your oyster. Uh, any degree would get you almost anything, as we as we were saying before. Um, but also, there was no there was no real. Um, there was no real pressure. Mm. Uh, nowadays people are very uh, focused on finding a job as quickly as possible. At the because I have to be as well, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Was, yeah, indeed. The... At the time this wasn't the case. Mm. Uh, yeah, I yeah, felt that, you know, I could take my time and think a little bit about what I wanted to do. Uh, it wasn't a straight line career. I didn't study dentistry, in which case I would clearly have become a dentist. Yeah. <laughs> um, but this was a more general uh, sort of portfolio type degree and I it's wanted to see. But I'd been an interpreter in the family. Mm. Uh, but um, I'd never actually done interpreting there. So you this mean you have
0: done it like once. for your grandparents? Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, we didn't
1: speak English that probably. Kind of stuff. So, mm. you know, I thought, yeah, oh, I quite like this, this is quite mm. fun, you know. Um, but I didn't do it as such, uh, and then uh, I got a part-time job or a short-time job, short-term job with an Italian, with a company in the north of England, which actually was a branch of an Italian construction company, and it wasn't doing very well. The Italian company was doing fine, but the English <laughs> subsidiary was not doing fine. Uh, so they sent the Italian management across and, uh, and, and none of them spoke very much English, uh, if at all. Uh, so they hunted around to see and they contacted my mum who gave Italian lessons. Um, and she said, well, I'm not going to do it because it was you, know, you had to go on to building sites and travel around and stuff. Yeah. She said, but my son might be interested. And so I did that for well, I don't know, a couple of months. Um, and this was quite fun and uh, they they got to trust me Mm. and we got on very well and after that they they went back to Italy and I suddenly became the international liaison uh, point
0: so they managed to fix the subsidiary that's
1: good (laughs) Uh, but it went under afterwards anyway but they managed managed to sort of limit the losses anyway and uh, I was casting around for something and uh, I had a friend who did the stash and uh he just said, uh, you know, maybe you'd be interested in this.
0: But he, didn't, he did it as well?
1: Uh, he, he was doing it when he wrote to me. Okay. And by the time I did anything, he'd already failed the stage mm-hmm. and, and gone somewhere else. Okay. Uh, but I'd written to, uh, to them. And, um, of course, there was no reply. <laughs> so the way Nine months later.
0: <laughs> the way you applied was just by sending a letter and saying, I, I'd like to do this. Yeah. Will you have me? And these are yeah. my credentials.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because well, I'd never heard of it. And, and, uh yeah. I don't You're think very, very many people. The yeah, I mean, the UK probably just
0: joined the EU. I don't know.
1: Uh, know I came so in '76. Three, I started. Yeah. yeah, two or three years later. Three or four years later. Yeah. yeah. So I, I turned up, and um, well, it went very well.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I have to say, I don't know what I. Was, I didn't know what I was letting myself in for. Maybe I would have been more nervous. You and know. Probably
0: nobody did. <laughs> I don't exactly. Know. Yeah. Exactly. Unless you knew some someone on the inside, really. Yeah. But even then, yeah.
1: It struck me that maybe there's some injustice there because, you know, if I had wanted all my life to be an interpreter, I probably would have been so nervous that I would have, you know, uh, tripped over several times. Uh, But in fact, since I didn't quite know what to expect, I went in fairly, fairly relaxed.
0: So, I mean, just for those who don't know, I mean, the the stage was basically an in-house training scheme. For interpreters at the commission, yeah. because there were very few training opportunities, I Absolutely. think or the schools didn't provide what the service needed. Uh,
1: that's that's a good way of saying it. Yes, indeed. Uh, the other thing is, uh, not the sort of people who would apply for interpreting courses were not necessarily the sort of people that, that they were looking for here.
0: Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, because I don't have any. I mean, I didn't. There, I wasn't then aware of it. But I don't think there was very much going on in Britain. Uh, in terms of interpreting training. And, and here it was very high level immediately. I mean, even when you were just, you know, a rookie, you still had to do some fairly, well, meetings where, I'm not saying they were important as such uh, in terms of top level prestige, but they were important for the everyday progress of the union. Uh, so it was quite hard. Uh, a lot of it was quite difficult, even from the very beginning. I mean, I, uh, the, the advantage of the stage was that you were, A, you went out to the universities to seek people rather than waiting for them. I was an exception here, but yeah. rather than waiting them for them to contact you. Yeah. So it was always targeted on, on, on good universities. Um, and therefore, I think the catchment area was different to, to the people who would normally of their own free will have thought about doing interpreting. Many of the people I did the stage with would never have done an interpreting course afterwards. Hmm. So that was one thing. The other thing is immersed. you're immersed in the, the real world of work. And uh, and uh, you were being assessed immediately in real time by hardened professionals, yeah. uh, sometimes very hard professionals too.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we've all heard those stories about yeah. Very harsh judgments. Human people rights t- have come in since then. Uh, yes, <laughs> and people taking it very personally, <laughs> as you do. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, how how long did it take you, or how long did it take in general uh, f- to get through this
1: stuff? Five months, maybe.
0: Yeah. So it was very intense, I suppose, because yeah. nowadays, I mean, yeah. a degree is at least
1: yeah. two, three years, I guess, yeah.
0: uh, depending on what you do. And, and you were working just with English, Italian, or French as well? French as well. French as well,
1: yeah. yeah. I had a retour into Italian, a consecutive, mm. okay. um, which I very rarely used, uh, to be honest, but uh, most of it was English, French, and then if there was Italian, uh, then most people, or many people would switch on to, to you for relay or to others for relay.
0: Mm. And were there already many people... Working with English as interpreters, or was it still difficult to find people?
1: Uh, oh, we were still we were still short. We were still short
0: because you said, I mean, the, the education system wasn't really prepared for no. this kind of thing. Yeah. No,
1: yeah. seems to be the hallmark of our relationship with the EU, doesn't it? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Um. So you successfully did the stage and then yep. stayed on. As, as a, uh, did, you, did you become a staff interpreter immediately?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, so, so, well, as soon as I'd done my concours, yeah. I did the yeah. first concours that came up, and, uh, and I was successful, so I started as a staff member. And as soon as I started as a staff member, I started on training as well.
0: Yeah. So uh, training re- recruits or... Uh, uh, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, I'd had, um, what, about 16 months' experience in, under my belt, uh, but uh, nobody'd said anything bad, so... Uh, <laughs> Must have been okay. Must have been okay.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, and and, and, and how, how I mean how do you how did you experience like the first weeks and months of actual work? Was it more or less the same as in the stage or was it was it surprising? Was did you find it difficult?
1: Or? Well I always slept very well on the after on the stage, I have to say. I mean it was they were tiring days. Uh, yeah. Uh, it's quite nerve-wracking, and, yeah. and you have to concentrate for long periods. Uh, the first day I actually did a real oh. meeting mm. was the harmonization of tower cranes, and at 9 o'clock at night I was in bed. <laughs> yes. So it it's, like it's tougher, um, so. and you have to develop the real strategies. I mean, mm. you know, you, you get better as you go along, even in the stage, yeah. uh, but you really have to develop uh, your own strategies, and also, um, I think, just... Acquire the habit to stay extremely cool. Uh, that that's very important. I think I was lucky in that I was fairly phlegmatic to start with. But, uh. <laughs> it's
0: probably a good uh, trait of character. Yeah. yeah. And and how did you experience the the situation back then with fewer working languages and probably smaller meetings compared to what we have now with you know so twenty eight members, twenty three, twenty four official languages. Well, it must have been different. But how how would you say? I mean, what what characterized
1: um, was it more intimate, maybe? Yes, I, I was just going to say you—you you took the word from my mouth. It was more intimate, uh, and it was more um, spontaneous, in that it was genuine discussion. Uh, nowadays, far more uh, prepared positions are read out rather than spontaneous uh, discussion and uh, and exchanges of views. Um, It's—I think—it's inevitable. Well, yeah. Somebody said the, the success or the productivity of a oh, meeting oh, oh, oh. is inversely proportional to the number of participants. Yes. And and according to that thesis, yeah. uh, it's only logical that it should be as it is.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, what's less useful and less constructive, I think, speaking as an interpreter at any rate, is that everybody should choose not to use the interpreting which is there uh, and to to make more use of English. Uh, Not that I have anything against English by any means, Uh, but uh, it's always um, a lingua franca. Is always there is no. We were talking about international sign language before. It's very difficult to say that there is one English.
0: Yeah, Yeah.
1: there is not, and it helps a lot if you know the speaker's native tongue. Oh yes. At one stage, I had to decipher a tape from a radio uh, show. Um, which nobody could decipher because the English was being spoken by somebody who's, I don't want to give too much away, but not, not a, a native, native speaker. <laughs> um, and I was called in because I had very strong uh, native language of that speaker. Yeah. And, um, and I, had a, uh, I, I got more than the others had got out of it, but it was very difficult. It was very difficult. So, you know, I don't know if any real communication got through in that um, because it's clearly a two-way process. I mean, you can try as hard as you like, uh, but if you don't have the tools to, to transmit that willpower into actual results, then it's not really communicating. Yeah,
0: I mean, there's a limit to what we can,
1: yeah. can do. That's true. It actually takes two people to communicate.
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, so you said there was more deliberation, I think, going on. But, but yeah. on the other hand, it was probably more formal than meetings are now. I mean, people being, or was that already the case back then, people being on a first-name basis, or I mean... Oh,
1: yes. For one thing,
0: people were still allowed to smoke, probably, back in the day, which is not the case anymore. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. No, no, it was was fairly informal. I mean, there was a certain formality because, uh, um, well, because things were more formal in those days, and, and things are more informal now, but groups that met regularly or at least frequently uh, they would know each other or most of them and so they would always uh, pop round to see each other in, uh, in the pauses between the meetings yeah. and they knew the previous position uh, that had been taken up by that speaker so they would go across in the in the coffee break and say well look have you thought about that have you thought it through really now what do you think what are you going to say when we come round to yeah. this so there was always this uh, going on. I, I quite liked that side of it, actually. Yeah. And if they couldn't talk directly, then they would ask, they would come very sheepishly oh, really and say, Listen, I have to say something to my uh, Italian colleague and, and he speaks no English. Would you, would, you, would you mind? I said, No, not at all. Come yeah. in. So I'd go along and, uh, well, that's all and have a coffee nowadays. with them. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: and, and the service was also smaller back then. I mean, there were just fewer interpreters and no, you uh, probably know each other. A much, lot fewer. Much
1: more. Uh, Yeah, I don't remember the exact number, but it must have been around 300 maximum. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now, now now we're into yeah.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, So, so how long did you stay in the booth, as it were, before switching over to other? Uh,
1: Well, it was a gradual transition. So, I mean.
0: Yeah, because you said you did training as well, very early on. Yeah,
1: I did a bit of training. I started off doing a bit of training, then I did more and more training. Um, Was it only
0: in-house training, or did you also go to universities? At that
1: time, it was in-house training. Um, I went, but it was unusual, but I went also uh, to uh, um, some universities. For example, IZIT in Paris, um, where some sort of uh, representation was required Mm. uh, on our side, They were one of the biggest suppliers of interpreters, if I can use those crude uh, technical terms. Um, And uh, but it was rare. It was rare. And the stage, we did do some direct assistance to universities, and we did give some small grants at the time as well. Uh, But most of it was channeled through the stage. And in fact, I was I was a trainee. Uh, I accompanied. uh, I did the stage myself. Yes. Um, I then turned what we used to call the OSTs, the other sides of the table. Uh, So I became a trainer. Um, And then I moved up to become a a fairly, well, not full-time trainer, but a good half-time trainer, Mm. I would say. Um, And then eventually I became the head of unit. Mm. And I was actually the head of unit whose job it was to put an end to the stash as well, which was, you know, uh, something I could have done without. (laughs) Having said that, I mean, I could see it coming. I could see it coming. We were getting to the stage with the, with the flourishing of language combinations. We were getting to the stage where there were more trainers than trainees to cover the combination. So I know it was really getting a bit too uncost effective.
0: Yeah, because, I mean, it takes up a lot of resources.
1: I mean, people yeah. have to
0: be free yeah. from their usual activities to be put in these trainings, and, and you need rooms. And, and you
1: once know, you'd things. planned them, once they were programmed, you couldn't unprogram them and yeah. send them off somewhere else, or at yeah. least not unless you could find somebody equivalent yeah. to put in. And, mm-hmm. and that wasn't always very easy.
0: Although that may have been easier back then because there were fewer languages, Indeed. and people, Indeed. I think, technically could cover all the languages, more or less. Absolutely. Within, yeah, with one person. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you went into... Other tasks, as it were, administration. Yep. Uh, I think he did a fair bit, uh, fair amount of work with universities as oh, well. I'll yes, yeah. um, was that when the whole thing of what we now call pedagogical assistance started? so yes, a stronger yes, cooperation with absolutely.
1: universities. Absolutely, we always had this cooperation, but it was yeah. on a more on a more piecemeal basis, I would yeah. say. Um, but we we uh, when I became head of unit, it coincided with a with a change of approach, and yeah. uh, and then everything. Uh, I, I set in place the things, or at least I and, and everybody else, of course, at the same time, um, structured it more, uh, introduced the idea that we should also prioritize. This is telescoping in time, of course, because yeah, yeah. it was a very gradual process, no. but introducing the idea that we should be prioritizing more uh, on the languages that we needed. Um, and, uh, and in the end, we had, uh, I think, a very cost ef- we have a very cost-effective operation. Yeah. Um, if it wasn't, I mean, a lot of people say, yes, but there are lots of interpreting courses now. Um, but that's not really the point. The point has always been that there have been fewer interpreting courses before than now, for sure. Mm. But the point is that we are very unacademic in the way we do things. And I don't think that an academic, that, that a university <laughs> training course yeah. would be able to have the resources it has if we weren't there to bolster them. Mm. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Uh, normally speaking to nowadays in, in academia, you have to have a PhD to get anywhere. There aren't very many interpreters. Mm. Well, there are more and more, but there still aren't very many interpreters who have PhDs. <laughs> yeah. uh, and yet we have always been adamant that it's interpreters who have to train interpreters. Mm. Just like a driving instructor. You can't, you yeah. can't, you can't, you would never take a driving instructor who wasn't a driver.
0: Ideally, yes. <laughs> that's <true. laughs> um, So... You came in the late 70s, then I think Greece joined in 81, Uh, were you already involved with that enlargement from the administrative side or was it more later than
1: Uh, Only uh, only at a distance on the administrative side. Uh, I was much more involved in the later uh, Portuguese enlargement and and, uh, to a lesser extent the Spanish enlargement because I'd started studying Portuguese um, and so I was an obvious victim. (laughs) But but times were very different. I mean, it sounds like an old fogey, but it used to take me... I had Friday afternoon, Mm. which was my Permanence, uh, when I had to do these things. So every Friday afternoon, I would go and do Portugal. And when I say that, it's it's a very active way of describing what I did. I actually tried to get an international phone line, and it could take two hours, and it would drop at the slightest provocation. So I sometimes spent my Friday afternoons Trying to get a line, only to see it drop after ten seconds, and my Friday evenings, uh, yeah. you know, gnashing my teeth in frustration and not having managed to do anything. Yeah, and I, I find that so hard to believe now. When you just pick up your phone, and you can you can communicate with the whole world. It's so wonderful. Even
0: video, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. So this was in the in the eighties. Yep.
1: Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, and, and I think then, then uh, for the for the real big enlargement in two thousand four, what we often call the Big Bang enlargement, you were already quite yeah. actively involved in preparing that because we had yeah. 10 new additional official languages coming into you, and um, we, we needed interpreters for that. So. Indeed. Can you describe a little bit how that how that went? I mean, you, you started probably years in advance preparing that.
1: We did. We did, and luckily we did. Uh, I think our first contacts with one of the 2004 uh, accession countries was... Uh, Hungary in 1992, I'm working on memory now, but yeah. uh, uh, we started uh, with Budapest in 1992. I'm not saying they were sustained contacts, but we already established yeah. channels, let's say. Yeah. Um, but as as it got closer, of course, we got rather more concerned because we know that our preparations take a long time, maybe not as long as the rest, but uh, still it has to be done well in advance. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, there were, there were lots of languages... Mm-hmm. That were entirely respectable and, uh, and uh, you know, have the status they have just the same as any other language. But yeah. they weren't international conference languages. Mm. So the usual resources we could turn to uh, for international conference interpreters weren't there. Mm. There were very few, very, mm. very few. And the courses that were there, there were some exceptions. But generally speaking, they weren't made for our degree of, of, of pickiness. Mm. Let me put it in, in that way. Uh, It was fine for for the usual stuff, but uh, it wouldn't have done, it didn't do for us. Therefore, we had to start much earlier. Some countries, uh, Malta was a challenge, for example, because it was a small uh, country, uh, 400,000 people at the time. Um, But they were very keen on their language. Uh, And uh, it was an official language, but uh, there was, I think, a constant uh, belief uh, throughout the world, or the rest of the world, that Maltese wasn't really necessary, whereas the, the Maltese made it very clear that it was necessary, or were trying to make it very clear yeah. that it was necessary. And when I looked in the AIC book, there was one gentleman, one colleague, who had Maltese. There were Maltese interpreters, mm. but they were Maltese nationals who interpreted, but not into Maltese.
0: Yeah. So they didn't have any training possibilities as well? Virtually nothing. But they were were willing to set it up to...
1: They were willing to set it up, absolutely. Uh, I had a visit from the Maltese Academy, Hmm. uh, which was, I think, if I remember right, about 12 eminent professors. Interesting. And and they were... Absolutely. And they were very keen, uh, almost... uh, aggressive, because they said to me they came, they were very nice, but they said mm. to me, "Who's going to check the Maltese?" I said, "Well, certainly not us. We will be relying on you." Yes. Ah, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> they yeah. Yes. I think they had this idea that you know Brussels was going to decide what was good Maltese or not, but uh, that's not at all our approach. Whatever the papers might say.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So, but so it involved a lot of contacts, I, I suppose, with national ministries and educational. Yes,
1: and it wasn't always easy because uh, the education ministries had had queues of professors saying, mm. "My my faculty and my course is special, and it's a virtual." Yeah. The um, the tactic uh, we used to use, and, and I was lucky enough to have some colleagues who were responsible for regions. For example, you mentioned Tony Scott before, uh, Klaus Bischoff for for the Baltic states, Mm -hmm. etc. And they were able to secure contact uh, frequently. And then I was one of the, perhaps not a big gun, but a medium-sized gun that was brought in. Um, And uh, I would see the the people in Brussels, Mm. the representatives of the country in Brussels. And I would say, listen, will you back us up in saying that there is a need for interpreting? conference mm. interpreting training, mm. which will give you the entire... Yes, of course. Yeah. So then I would go across there, um, and I discovered, uh, talking to the people in the Ministry of Education, that they have coefficients of funding for courses. So, yeah. a physics course is more expensive than a French course, right? Yeah. Okay, so an interpreting course was thrown into the languages bag, yeah. which meant it had a very low coefficient mm. of funding. And what I discovered was, I, I refused it as a language, or well, I argued, I, it's not me to refuse, I yeah. argued that it was not languages, yeah. uh, but that it was an applied skill which used languages. Mm. And, and I made the, the paragon of, of music. Mm. And music had a very high coefficient, mm. because it had a, required a very high ratio of teacher to pupil. Yeah. Uh, and it required special instruments, in our case, Booths, microphones, yeah. etc., well, and there the funding uh, that were well, well we, that was a tactic that worked in in many of the countries, hmm. and so we were able to secure extra funding, backed by their foreign uh, foreign affairs representatives here.
0: And I mean, it it did work in the end, I think. I mean, there it did work in the end. Yeah, at least a certain yeah. amount of interpreters available when the, when the countries joined.
1: Yeah. Well, um, we had, um, we had uh, some timber temp- uh, for the last. Two years I had temporary agents mm. in, in uh, several of the countries, and they either were training in the universities or mm. they were interpreting for the, our head of delegation in that country. And uh, I know the delegations were delighted to have top quality interpreting available. That's good to know
0: Yeah, <laughs> that, that it's being uh, appreciated. Yeah. So I, I suppose for the, uh, what was the last one? 2007 was Romania and Bulgaria. That was already a bit easier, I suppose, because they sort of, uh, the preparations had already begun, but then it was sort of delayed yeah. for several reasons, and yeah. they, they, they joined yeah. later. Um, but, I mean, the, the SCIC, or, or has for a long time, I think, had a, a role beyond the EU as well. So there's cooperations with uh, Macau, China, I think. There's the African uh, project. There's Russia. So how how did that, how did that start? Was that, I mean, because these languages are not necessarily working languages of, or official languages of the EU.
1: Absolutely, absolutely true. Uh, Well, it started, uh, actually the Chinese one was the first one. Mm. Um, And that started because our then director general went to China uh, with her husband, who was the vice president responsible for trade of the commission. Mm. Uh, And uh, when they were there... Uh, when he was there, the, the the Chinese authorities were interested in interpreting, and and uh, they quickly realised that their form of interpreting, for example, they don't do consecutive as we do it; they do it sentence by sentence. Oh, wow! Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, they were informed that really when, when regular meetings of the two parties would take place, there would be interpreting and it wouldn't be this sort of interpreting at all. It just and takes that, uh, too long, I suppose, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I see it as a form of soft power. Yeah. Um, we started this training course and soon it became a fast track. Mm. Why? Because uh, some unknown official in, say, the Ministry of Foreign Trade mm. uh, would Come here to do the interpreting course because they knew a language. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only generally knew one of the Western languages, yeah. um, and uh, and uh, then they would go back, and the minister would have them as an interpreter. Mm. Not just with us, but wherever they went, mm. they would have a Chinese English interpreter, for example. Mm. And it would always be this dynamic young person, <laughs> and the minister would see this, and it was a fast track to promotion. Yeah. Uh, so this became known, and uh, and it was very much sought after. Our problem was. Uh, was uh, not taking more than we thought could decently be taken and expected yeah. to perform afterwards. Hmm.
0: And, and was it so sure? that
1: was the start. Yeah. Africa, uh, at the time, we were pretty short of, uh, uh, of interpreters. There was, a, uh, I wouldn't say a drought, but uh, we could always do with more. So um, what
0: languages always because I mean French and English are very important languages in Africa Absolutely. but you're talking about native African languages
1: now, uh, okay. at the time for us yes, yeah. it was it was uh, French mostly French and English mm. um, there was Portuguese as well, of course the the um, African countries uh, also are, are multilingual, mm. and they had problems in finding sufficient numbers of properly trained interpreters as well. But we started off mm. uh, because European interpreters were being, not ours, but freelancers on the European market, mm. let me define that, uh, were being flown down to Africa uh, to, to work there because there weren't enough African interpreters. And we, I worked very closely with uh, the other uh, organization, international organizations, mm. etc. Yeah, a horrible acronym. Yeah. So uh, is it <coughs> the
0: UN or, or African Union as well? It's was, was uh, it's all of them. them yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Um, and uh, and uh, we had a con- there was a conference in Nairobi which was organized which we attended and we had a resolution there mm. uh, that it should be uh, that sh- we should try to train. A sufficient number of mm. African professionals in translation and interpreting mm. um, because there was no point importing people it was more costly for the organizations yeah. um, and and less effective for the local population because they weren't really getting anything out of that mm. uh, and we thought and and the African contingent from from the UN and, and organizations also thought that they were the last of the generations that mm. would come to because it was more expensive and more difficult to come yeah. across. And that was the origin of the, of the uh, African project, which wasn't just us, of course. It was uh, also the UN, the African Union, yeah. etc.
0: So it was a little bit out of self-interest as well, too, yes. because you were sort of losing interpreters yes. to other organizations. Yeah. yeah.
1: In fact, I was challenged in the conference by, by the local AIIC uh, representative, who oh. said to me that it's not true that we import European interpreters. Uh-huh. So I said, "Well, you probably had the figures to I back it mis- up. <laughs> perhaps I misunderstood the African Development Bank and the United States <laughs> Nations of uh, Nairobi. Yeah. Uh, but this is what they told me." And yeah. then, in the coffee break, there was a guy who came down from the booths and said to me, mm-hmm. "You know, you're right. You know, I come from Europe regularly.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> so everybody's interested in their own. Uh, yeah. Everybody takes care of their own garden, let's say.
0: I, I guess that's the last big topic, I, w- I wanted to." Uh, to Talk about uh, you, the thing is at the Skick universities conference you always gave a, a talk which was always a, a fixed thing at these conferences about trends in interpreting yeah and you would talk about uh, well how interpreting developed in in the institutions mainly and what went up demand went down these kinds yeah. of things so what what's your sort of I guess takeaway for for the last years and maybe how would you see it develop in in the next year so in terms of the importance of English or a uh, just how meetings develop, and maybe the role of technology, if that's not too, too much of, a, yeah. of an ask.
1: Well, I, I would premise that I don't think English is going to go away, despite yeah. what people say. I mean, uh, the UK may leave, or it may not. Yeah, this all remains to be seen, or we may come back, who knows? Yes.
0: <laughs> you may never leave, who knows,
1: yeah. Absolutely. Um, so I, I premise that, uh, that I believe that the English will stay. Hmm. Um, so that won't make that much difference to the language arrangements. Uh, that's my own point of view. Yeah. Uh, what, will, uh, what goes up and down or what has fluctuated has been the, the demand for interpreting uh, in the commission. Mm. Um, and to some extent, we saw that that was occasioned by a, a better regulation i.e. cutting down on the regulation that was not considered to be priority, Mm. Um, and therefore the number of meetings went down, the number of uh, interpreting, uh, the amount of interpreting went down too. We don't know which way that will go, Uh, and I don't have any gypsy teapot to to look into my tea leaves with. Um, I don't think that the profession will disappear, first of all, let me say that. I think this is quite clear. We're here to stay. Uh, there is more and more multilingual communication, and I think there will always be work for yeah. uh, colleagues uh, who are appropriately qualified mm. because many many outside who are doing multilingual uh, work don 't aren 't properly qualified. Um, and, and often they still think it's still thought in companies that you can just wing it. You know, so and yeah. so, so and so from uh, packaging knows uh, a bit of English and he can take care of this. Yeah. I mean, but there's a lot of research that's shown that uh, a sloppy website with uh, imperfect communication mm. is is an instant turn off and people just don't stay on it.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so that's uh, that's clear. The UK uh, accepted that the lack of knowledge of foreign languages was, uh, I think provoking, if I remember right, 3.5% less GDP. That's a lot.
0: Yeah. That's a lot. That's an
1: awful And, and a, a hell of a lot more than would be required to reinstate a very good language uh, program. Yeah. They used to have a very intensive program for foreign diplomats, mm-hmm. for diplomats, UK diplomats yeah. going abroad, yeah. um, of which one of our colleagues was one at one mm-hmm. stage. Um, and then they did away with that and they did away with the foreign languages uh, school.
0: Yeah.
1: And after a few years they decided to reinstate it all mm. because they could see the losses coming in very quickly indeed. So I don't think, I don't think there will be uh, an end to multilingualism. I don't believe either the Ostler view that uh, English is the last lingua franca and that technology will take over. Yeah. I'm not saying never because you can never say never, uh, but it won't be for a good while yet. Um, And I think that, uh, at any rate, I've always thought this, uh, the people who did the stage with me did not necessarily all pass, but the ones who failed went on to get very good jobs. I know one of them uh, who was in my particular group, and he's been a journalist in Beijing. And Mm -hmm. if you think about it, the skills that we teach in interpreting are what? Learning to listen properly, understanding reformulating, repackaging, and getting it out. Yeah. And um, work your way into
0: different topics. Yeah, we use that analogy, as actually. Absolutely, yeah. Which,
1: yeah. Is, which is all you need yeah. to do a lot of jobs. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, quite, it's quite clear that nowadays, before, the hierarchy used to be exactly, exactly that. It was a pyramid. Mm. The boss said something, and this order was relayed down and, and mm. sort of detailed more and more for each thing. And yeah. that's not the way it is now. We're in the knowledge society. Uh, There are lots and lots of graduates at the bottom of the pyramid who have lots of uh, interesting and intelligent things to say, and non-graduates too. Um, And nowadays, you have to be able to argue your proposal. Mm. And therefore, communication skills are essential. Mm. So I think even if you don't pass, even if you don't get a job as an interpreter, uh, it's not the end of the world, you can still be well-equipped to get a very good job.
0: With these skills, yeah. 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 And, And how do you see the role of technology develop? I mean, we've seen in recent years that there's been remote interpreting that uh, we do occasionally in, in in the council. Do you see that become more important in, in terms of quantity as well?
1: Uh, I think so. I think so because. Uh, it used to be that travel was prestigious and glamorous, and, and uh, that's no longer the case. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Travel is and much more yeah, for business. Absolutely, business class, yeah. for for business, yeah. uh, right. travel is, is is a pain most yeah. of the time and a distraction, yeah. and you're away from your desk, and it takes you a long time to recover afterwards, yeah. etc. Especially so, with security nowadays. <laughs> absolutely, and the other reason is why why should you yeah. when there when there is a good way of doing it, mm. um, and we're getting there. Yeah. Uh, I think we're there. I, I don't think. That remote interpretation is a is a problem in itself. Uh, I just think that the problem will be to ensure that there is no degradation and deterioration. I don't think anybody wants to end up in uh, underground car parks or whatever, uh, but I don't think it'll come to that.
0: Yeah, it doesn't have
1: to. No, I don't see why it should. I mean, we're still we're still very experienced professionals. Uh, they could do that with other people, but. Uh, uh, in the end, as I said to you before, I think it's a universal uh, qualification of uh, mm. being a good conference interpreter. You can do lots and lots and lots of jobs. Uh, I was interviewed by a journalist about this some time mm. ago, and I said to him, well, it's a bit like you. Yeah. Uh, uh, you have to come here. You have to understand everything I'm saying. You have to make sense of yeah. it, and then you have to reformulate it. I said the difference is with the interpreters, we have to s- tell the truth. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Did he agree with that? He laughed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. This has been episode 32 of the LangFM podcast, a conversation with Brian Fox. For all the other episodes that I've done so far, just head on over to langfm.audio. That's langfm.audio. And why not subscribe, so you don't miss any future episodes. It would also be nice if you could leave a quick review on iTunes or anywhere else where you find your podcasts and listen to them. That would be much appreciated. Talk to you soon on lange
1: I still remember. Did I ever tell you about the les Eaux Déshydratées. Les
0: eaux
1: Les Eaux hydratées in a customs tariff meeting. Yeah. Yeah. Les Eaux Déshydratées. Yeah, you yeah, happens, yeah. yeah. les eaux yeah. and that was uh, you know, there was silence from the booth. We yeah. all went round on relay so to see what dehydrated. the others had said. What, yeah. what was it? I forgot what it, was it was the was. plural of garlic.